listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we do praise you and we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the privilege that you've given us to gather together in freedom and in safety to open your word to our hearts and lives. We thank you, Father. We do not take that for granted. We thank you for the heritage you've given us that allows us to this freedom. And Father, we also solicit your Holy Spirit to open your word to our hearts and lives and, and uh, help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we commit ourselves in this evening and this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. We are in the third session and uh, we'll be looking at chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, um, we're going. To, first of all, we're going to discover that the whole book of Deuteronomy is actually a series of sermons. We always think of the New Testament as having the Gospels, which are historical, and we have, uh, including Acts, I always treat Acts like a fifth gospel, sort of. And then we have all these letters by Paul, which are interpretive and are guides. Uh, uh, they, they sort of answer the so what questions. All these things happen, great. What do they mean? As Paul helps us with that in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we tend to look at the Torah, the five books of Moses, as historical books, and indeed they are. But we overlook the fact that one of these books, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, is actually a collection of sermons by the most venerated prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, you could say in the Bible, but you don't want to exclude Christ as a prophet. He's a prophet too, among his many, many uh, roles and, and, and capabilities. But uh, Moses, of course, is incredibly venerated. And we have here, at the end of his life, he spent 40 years growing up in, in Egypt. He spent 40 years on the backside of the desert in Midian, getting ready for the Exodus. Then he spent, through the whole Exodus experience, and then he spent another 40 years with these guys in the, wandering the wilderness because they didn't have the guts to go forward when God told them to. So he's 120. He's near the end of his days. God's told him, by the way, you're not going to have the promised land. After all that, you're not going to make it because he offended God. He'll talk about that. But we have here a series of uh, sermons by Moses. His first sermon is uh, the first four chapters, pretty much. We've talked about that so far. His second sermon will start uh, starts at the end of 44 and goes on until chapter 28. It's, it's most of the, of the book because he's recounting all of their history. And the third sermon is from chapter 29 to 30. And then the last days, much of which was probably appended by Joshua but, or some appropriate scribe, um, uh, as he has his very unusual ending. And uh, it's more unusual than most scholars have been able to figure out because for some weird reason, Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ, alludes to something, as if we knew about it, but we don't, that Michael fought with Satan over Moses' body. What's that all about? Well, we'll talk about that when we get, uh, when we get to that. But let's just jump in, chapter 5, uh, chapter 1, excuse me, uh, verse one, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, uh, Moses called all Israel, we're going to hear that a lot, all of Israel's in view here, and said unto them, Hear, O Israel. Now that a, 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 indicates that what's coming is not incidental. It's, very, very, it's a way of underlining it in red, if you will. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep them and do them. Boy, there are four verbs that are admonitions to every one of us. 
Let's try, I realize this is familiar ground, and I realize, well, this is the Old Testament, we're in the New Testament, we hear all that running through our minds. Let's recognize that God has this here for you and I. Paul tells us in Romans 15:4 that whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, so that we, through the comfort and patience of the Scriptures, might have hope. So everything's here for you and I, in, the, in some context, we need to understand that. But we need to learn them, we need to keep them, and do them. So we need to hear, um, learn, keep, and do. Anyway, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb and Sinai are synonyms, for, as far as we're concerned, for what we call Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is what the scripture says, but don't confuse that with the traditional Mount Sinai, and the Sinai after which the peninsula is named. Because recent discoveries have pretty much uh, confirmed the reality that the Mount Sinai is actually in Arabia where Paul said it was in Galatians. And that's a whole other thing we won't get into, but just let's be alert that much, many of our Bible helps are, are, are still victims of the traditions when, in fact, there's some recent discoveries that are really quite exciting. Anyways, he, God made a covenant with these people. And this is easily said and familiar to most of us, but let's realize this is rather weird, rather surprising, rather strange. Here's the ruler of the universe, the creator God, who singles out a group of people to make a special covenant with them. And we're going to find that these people are stiff-necked, troublesome, um, they're problems. And as we look at them, let's realize there go ourselves. Let's recognize that uh, they will look to us on many occasions, because we're seeing this all editorialized, of course, from God's point of view, and nevertheless, we look at them and we'll sort of smile at them. How can they be? that way, and we've got to look in the mirror and realize we're the same way. And let's just stipulate that now and we'll watch as we go. But in any case, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. He's speaking of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, that was long ago. In other words, those are ancients to these people. God made the covenant not with them. With the, the covenant he's talking about is a covenant he made with them at Horeb. The law, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, all of that. And we'll be getting into it. Moses, in this summary, the book of Deuteronomy, is going to recap all that and try to put it in perspective. And so it's interesting that ancient treaties between rulers and their subjects have a format. As we go through our archaeology and we find these documents, we discover that there was a fairly standard format. And it had certain elements. It typically had a prologue that would uh, uh, review the relationship with the ruler and his people. Um, and then it would typically have some basic stipulations, the general principles that were to guide behavior by both parties. Then there were some detailed stipulations, expanding on the rules that would uh, guide the behavior of both parties. And then there'd be a document clause, typically, uh, calling for ratification by the subjects themselves. The ruler made certain commitments and expected certain commitments in return. And then there'd be typically blessings and cursings. The benefits that the ruler would grant if, they, if everything's going well and the cursings or the punishments, whatever, uh, of those that would violate the treaty stipulations. And then, of course, there's a recap or a summary at the end. That's a pattern that we see in all kinds of ancient documents. And what's fascinating, that's the same outline that we're finding in the book of Deuteronomy. The prologue is the first few chapters we went through last time. The uh, basic stipulations we're going to go through, chapters 5 through 11. We'll go through several of those in this session and the next. 
And then uh, the detailed stipulations for another dozen chapters or so. Then there's some document issues, and the blessings and curses are recounted in, in chapters. These aren't all equal size, but they, the, the point is they, they follow this classic structure. Not a big deal, but it's, I think, useful to have in mind. So we saw the prologue last time, and uh, we're going to be pretty much in the basic stipulation kind of area uh, tonight. So that's where we're headed. Moving on, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 4. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of fire. Now recognize, see, Moses is talking to his people. And he's reminding them of things that happened roughly 40 years ago. And uh, he said, the Lord talked with you face to face. He said, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. I can't blame them. You know, when you see the mount uh, uh, Jabal al-Laws in Arabia, it's a huge mountain. And the top two-thirds has been melted externally. It looks dark, and you take a piece of granite and break it open, you discover it's been externally heated from intense pressure. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's startling to, to see this. Uh, tough stuff went on. Anyway, saying, anyway, uh, they heard him saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And uh, we're going to see that uh, uh, this, uh, as we go forward here, God is going to be dealing with this covenant relationship. We're going to see that uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as it's called, uh, is not just a moral code, it is the text of a covenant. And uh, it exhibits the pattern of a treaty, because um, it has the preamble and the uh, historical, it, it goes right through the whole, whole uh, 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 structure. And it was, given, it was uh, uh, never given to them to, for justification. It always has been granted, uh, just always freely through faith. The law was never designed to give people salvation. The law was not given to them to give redemption. These pe- Let's keep this in mind. These people to whom this is all going to be recounted are people who have been redeemed out of Egypt. So the context is they're already redeemed. These are just the expectations God has going forward. And... Uh, and, he goes, and, and then Moses goes through and recounts that which we usually associate with Exodus chapter 20, the famed Ten Commandments. And uh, so, let's go. And the whole idea, by the way, is to, it calls for a submission of each of the people to, in every area of their lives. This is a ruler uh, expressing his requirement that goes far beyond. Uh, it, it preempts anything else in their lives. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. That's where it starts. And uh, the uh, other gods, of course, is a, in a sense a technical term for those pagan concepts which have existed both in the form of idols and uh, also existed in the minds of the worshipers. You and I may say, gee, we don't have idols. We don't have any of these stone or wood things at home we worship. But we do have concepts that we yield to that run our lives other than God. They become idols. It could be various forms of materialism. It can be other forms of ambitions. It can be other forms of, of submission that we submit to that are or can't run the risk, at least, of being other gods. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. God does not want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one. And that's really what he's saying here, I believe. So, thou shalt not make thee, any graven image, 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. So um, it's interesting that, uh, and he goes on, thou shalt not bow down thyself. He's not, he is, by the way, this is not a prohibition against art. This is a prohibition against making graven image or art that they worship to. There's no, there, there, there's, there, there, don't misunderstand this. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a what? Anyone? A jealous God. And that doesn't mean jealous in the sense that he's, he's envying something that he's not entitled to. That's not the, the term jealousy. We use that term a little differently. This is a God that guards that which he is entitled to. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Oh boy, now we get, there's a big debate that comes out of this one. I'm showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the third and fourth generation. This does not mean that the children are being held accountable for the sins of the fathers. It simply means that when you have generations that hate God, it tends to produce offspring that will hate God also. That's really what he's saying. And that also is the experience in life. So I don't want to get into this whole generational sin debate, but uh, there's a very, very real dynamic for those that have studied demonology, in terms of those that have come from a background of the occult, that there are some very, very serious things to be aware of, to be renounced explicitly. You know, it's very interesting. The, ancient, the early church had a procedure that if you accepted Christ, part of the procedures that's still embodied in some of the more traditional denominations is an explicit renunciation of Satan, all his works, and all his ways. You know, we have, we have sort of a, a different style in our culture come down the sawdust trail and accept Christ and give him a gospel of John and boy, that's, yeah, that's it, that's done. It's not that simple. First of all, there needs to be a real recognition of the sin problem. There has to be a real repentance. But in the case where people have a background in the occult, they're, they're, we've discovered painfully that there needs to be, that has to be dealt with very explicitly. And that's why if there's any background or even suspicion of a background, it's worth taking that before the throne of grace and uh, renouncing it. And uh, there's a whole area to get into that uh, I won't take the time here, but just realize that there is a, a lot of study that might well be done in that direction. And yet showing mercy to the thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's the sign of redemption. Do you love God? Do you keep his commandments? And uh, so the, uh, this whole idea of pro- prohibiting other gods is uh, uh, intensely urgent uh, before God and for, before Moses because these people are going to be moving into a cultural background that is very systematically opposed to everything they stand for. We need to understand what Canaan was really like. And God was beginning right now to set a foundation so that they wouldn't be enamored with or entrapped by these sinister forces prevalent in the pagan religions of that, that region. So he doesn't want them contaminated with idolatrous forms of worship, and he wants to make sure they really understand that God is sovereign, that their God is sovereign. And uh, goes on, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now, to misuse God's name 
uh, means literally to lift up or attach it to emptiness. See, you don't have to be swearing to be... All you need to do in any way is to demean the majesty of that name, the significance of God's reputation, etc. This command, of course, forbids profanity, but it goes far deeper in concept than just that. And uh, it's a directive against using God's name in any manipulative way. And uh, so, uh, like used in magic or something like that. It's, it's, uh, and, uh, so it's, uh, if you use God's name flippantly or uh, falsely attribute to God a wrong act, is, uh, you've broken this commandment. It's, it's something that, again, I'm not, we're not going to get into a whole study carefully of the Decalogue, because uh, I assume that's, that should be well-traveled ground, but it's something each of us um, needs to take seriously and, and undertake a personal study in each one of these. Then we get to this interesting one. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days thou shalt uh, labor and do all thy work, and on he goes. You know, it's interesting that uh, this issue of the Sabbath day is not a simple issue. Uh, many Christians say, well, gee, Sunday is our Sabbath day, and that's fine, and that's, that's okay, except it, it, it doesn't really deal with the issue. Because the Sabbath day is the seventh day. God ordained the seventh day. Now, does that mean we shift over and become, make that a fetish, like the Seventh-day Adventists, where that's a big uh, litmus test somehow? Uh, what about the Sabbath day? What is it? Well, first of all, you need to understand the Sabbath day was not instituted in the Ten Commandments. It was reminded and it was made part of, yes, but it was instituted in Eden when, with Adam and Eve. Instituted in Eden. The, uh, it was b- observed before the law was given. When you get to, uh, the law was given in Exodus 20. Four chapters earlier, they're out in the wilderness and uh, God feeds them with manna. When you read Exodus 16, they were not to gather it on the Sabbath day. There wouldn't there'd be some for six days, but the Sabbath day would be twice as, there'd be uh, there would be twice as much. The Seventh day there wouldn't be any. And and uh, if they tried to store it and stuff, it wouldn't. You know the whole the whole thing there in Exodus 16, what everybody misses, they were observing the Sabbath day. That was not instituted at Mount Sinai. This is long before it was instituted in Eden. It became a major symbol, a signature of of, of God's covenant with Israel, uh, but it doesn't make it Israel's thing only. And what really blows you away, you say, okay, well, we're now in the New Testament period, so that's different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you, we're going to have a millennium. Jesus is going to come back and institute the thousand-year reign, right? And in Isaiah 66, you'll discover that all nations will go up to the temple to observe, guess what? The Sabbath day, the Seventh day. And uh, in Ezekiel 44 and 46, we discover the temple, the millennial temple, isn't open except on the Sabbath day and new moons on certain festivals. So the Sabbath day hasn't gone away. You say, well, wait a minute, Chuck. Are you saying that we as Christians should be observing the Sabbath day? No, I'm not. Well, wait a minute. What are you saying here? See, remember what Paul <clears throat> tells us in Romans 14 and Colossians 2, that the Sabbath is not enforced. And it's not, not enforced in the New Testament. Let no man judge you in the keeping of any holy day or any Sabbath day. Paul tells us. Why? Because we have perfect freedom in Christ. Our, uh, we are not under the law. Jesus Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. So we have liberty in Christ. That's not license, but we have liberty. Now, so, we, so is Sunday, we, we, it has been a tradition in the Christian community to uh, honor Sunday in recognition of the Lord's resurrection. And that's great. But don't confuse that with the Sabbath institution in the Old Testament. 
That doesn't mean we're under the law. That doesn't mean all those rules that they established applies to us because we're free of that. Paul makes that very clear. But at the same time, so Jichuk, well, how do we reconcile that? I don't know. You gotta say, do you become a Seventh-day Adventist? A lot of people say, Chuck, you become a Seventh-day Adventist. No, I, don't, I haven't. Because I don't believe we're under the law. And that's where the people that start getting into this thing start getting in under the law and, and, and so forth. If you get into the law, you've got real problems. First of all, you've got more, laws, more rules than you really want to get into. But secondly, uh, you're missing the point of Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. So what does that, how, well, G. Chuck, what do you do for the Sabbath day? I'll tell you what Nan and I try to do. When Saturday comes around, it's the seventh day, we try to do three, we have three rules. First is we do whatever we're going to do deliberately, whatever it is. Take a trip or do camping or whatever. So we do whatever we're going to do deliberately. We do it together. And the third thing is there are no other rules. <laughs> and because we travel or other things, we, we don't make a big thing of it. We, we try to acknowledge that, hey, it's a special day the Lord set aside. We spend most of our time on Saturday anyway, because we're trying to get some publishing deadline, you know, studying the Word of God, because we're all writing something or preparing for something, so we spend a lot of time doing that. But we, make it a, we, we set it aside a special day. And, uh, and uh, see, you and I have an advantage. We're not under Constantine, who codified all worship on Sundays, because he had three different groups of sun worshipers, plus the Christians he was trying to unify in his empire. So he, he made Sunday a holiday, which is a big deal for the slaves. They didn't have a day off until then. And so, uh, but you and I have a big break. We have two days off. We have Saturday and Sunday. Use them as you like. If Sunday's your special day, great. Praise God. For a Christian, every day is special. No problem with that. Those of you that feel, gee, you know, I kind of like the idea of honoring the, the, the ancient tradition of Shabbat. Praise God. Do it. Just don't get under the law. Don't get put yourself under the rules that Christ freed us from because you're, in doing so, you're denying the completed work of Christ. Paul hammers away on that. That's what... Uh, the book of Romans deals with it in chapter 14, Colossians 2, and most of the Galatians, you, go, you can go through it. So, so much for this prickly subject. But let's move on. Verse 14, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, and it thou shalt do no work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of the cattle, nor, any, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. In other words, if you're a foreigner visiting, you still had to observe it, as you do when you're in Israel. I come to that. That thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. Now, when you go to. What makes it colorful is they've gone to such extremes that it is um, strange. If you are in a hotel in Israel on Saturday, on Shabbat, you'll discover the elevators have every other floor already pushed. They're Sabbath elevators because they feel pushing a button to go to floor three would be doing work. So they have Sabbath elevators for the Orthodox. You try to find one that's not a Sabbath elevator if you can, so you can get to floor seven if you need to, without stopping at six floors on the way, or whatever. Is you follow me? Sometimes they'll have odd and even, so they have these all pre you know, as you get you, you go through this, um, these rules that have gotten in the way of what uh, God really intended. But in any case, clearly God did sanctify the seventh day, and he made it a special sign for his covenant people Israel. So don't, mis- don't misunderstand me. The Sabbath was observed before Israel was a nation, but it becomes among the, the, the identity things of the Jewish community. Just like circumcision. Israel is not the only nation that circumcises. But it is, nevertheless, a sign uh, that was ordained uh, of, of uh, the covenant with Israel. And uh, Moses goes on, he says, Remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand 
and a stretched out arm. Therefore, Lord, thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So, see, God has a pattern. God works. He accomplishes his purpose. And then he, rejoicing, he rests. That's what he did in the creation when, Sab- when the Sabbath was uh, established. That's also what he did. You know, in, in Exodus chapter, your problem, by the way, about the Sabbath day is Exodus 20, verse 11. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the problem people have, you know, do you believe Genesis 1 was the world created in six days? You get in that big debate. Are they six eras? Are they literally six days? And all that sort of stuff. You got all kinds of people say, well, I think I just sort of feel that those six days are thousand-year periods or something. Um, uh, well, that's fine. See, your problem is not Genesis 1. Your problem is Exodus 20, verse 11. Because there God clearly expects us to understand that he did in six days. I did it in six days and rest the seventh. You're going to work six days and rest the seventh. He's deliberately building that parable parallel, ex, uh, uh, expecting us to understand that they were six days. So the 20, Exodus 20:11 is your problem if you're getting into the creation debates and all that. But uh, anyway, the presentation in Exodus 20 verse 11 puts the Sabbath in the context of the creation. Here it's a little different. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5 presents it as. Uh, uh, the cons- uh, consummation pattern manifested in the redemption of the nation out of Egypt. A little different parallel, but again, God establishing the same pattern. God did a work did, and rejected. They did a work, they should rest. And so uh, Exodus 2011 is the creation, Deuteronomy 5.15, redemption. Same pattern. The seventh day is set aside, is sanctified by God himself. Then we get to this one, honor thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, that it may be go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This is the first commandment with a promise. That's not my <clears throat> editorializing. That's what Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. This is the first commandment with a specific blessing attached to it. And, of course, this commandment was critical to the existence of the nation. The word you here in both places is plural. That you will be, uh, that, that things will go well with thee or with you. Uh, it's plural. And not just individually, but collectively as a nation. And uh, so uh, also what the, what the under, underlying thought here, and it's going to show up all the way through Deuteronomy, is that it's the parents, especially the fathers, rather than the religious leaders, that are to pass the covenant to their children. The children are to learn about their covenant relationship from God from the parents, not from the Levites. Although, don't misunderstand, the Levites, they were to instruct and teach and all that. But the responsibility for the children's religious education was the parents. If that shoe pinches, uh, don't blame me. That's what God says. So that's more. Okay. Um, Deuteronomy 5.17, Thou shalt not murder. You say, what's this? We mean that not murder. Thou shalt not kill. The word in the Hebrew is rasash, which means to murder, to slay. In that sense, to kill. And so... Since man was created uh, by God in his image, man should not take another human's life apart from divine permission or ordinance. And this commandment does not prohibit capital punishment, nor does it uh, uh, prohibit engaging in war. Why do I say that? Because the Torah deals with both those topics explicitly. They did have capital punishment. They did stone for all kinds of offenses. So this does not, this has nothing to do, this commandment has nothing to do with the issues pro or con about capital punishment. It also has nothing to do with, uh, the, uh, with war, which the Torah deals with separately. We could talk about that, but understand it's a different topic. This is a topic here. And so, uh, so it's, uh, 
It's uh, important to understand. Many people misunderstand thou shalt not kill. No, it's thou shalt not murder, and speaking specifically as a slayer, it's called about a, 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 a prohibited form of murder. And uh, so, by the way, you talk about capital punishment, I want to point out something to you. Do you realize that ancient Israel had no prisons? Think about it. They had no prisons. You know, if you were committing adultery, they took care of that rather promptly. You were stoned to death. I suspect that, I still suspect there was adultery, but I suspect it wasn't widely advertised or promoted as we have in our culture. I just got back from a visit to the Louisiana State Penitentiary. They have 5,000 inmates on an 18,000 acre uh, penitentiary that's surrounded three sides by the Mississippi River. It's actually larger in area than in Washington, D.C. 5,000 inmates, 85% of them will die there. Louisiana hands, hands out 100 year sentences without parole for rape and so on. And there's a lot of guys, in fact, the, by one estimate of one of the officials there, probably over half the inmates don't belong there. But they're not in the jurisprudence business. That's held, done by the state and other, uh, other offices, you know, the parole boards and things. The penitentiary is very well administered. It's become a showcase for the whole world. The warden is a born-again Christian. And they have 1,655,000 are born-again Christians. They have a 200-person seminary within the grounds and so forth. It was a very interesting visit. But the point is, it's interesting. We have this huge penal establishment. They didn't have one in Israel. They... uh, they had things called an avenger of blood, the Goel. He's our kinsman redeemer, but he's also the avenger of blood. And there's all administered. We'll get, we'll get into that as we go. But, but uh, anyway, uh, let's move on. Neither shalt thou commit adultery. And uh, this is um, pretty straightforward. The marriage relationship should reflect the believer's relationship to God. And, of course, extramarital activities were, of course, uh, were uh, prohibited. Now, though the Seventh Commandment here does not explicitly uh, refer to premarital sex, the Pentateuch does prohibit it elsewhere. It's prohibited in Genesis 2.24, Exodus 22.16, Deuteronomy 22. We'll deal with it when we get there. So, see, the idea is that an Israelite that was unfaithful uh, to his or her partner uh, would also be unfaithful to the covenant of God um, and uh, would be inclined to go with other gods. So, that's, that's... um, not the only, but one of the dynamics in mind here. Neither shalt thou steal. Now this can refer not just to tangibles. It can refer to opportunities. It shocks me to, as a businessman to get into the so-called professional Christian community. I've spent 30 years in the corporate boardrooms of America and enjoyed a higher ethic among those businessmen than I have enjoyed or seen, observed, uh, uh, in the so-called professional Christian community. People think nothing of uh, dishonoring intellectual property. They think nothing of diverting, d- diversion of corporate opportunities. They think of nothing of breach of fiduciary duty. Those concepts, some of that's just poor, due to poor training, but it's astonishing to, to realize that this concept of thou shalt not steal involves more than just tangibles, opportunities and such. Uh, By the way, this commandment has another implication you should think through. It endorses the idea of private ownership. Many people miss that. uh, uh, Socialism is a 
a mechanism to plunder the productive by the unaccountable. And it's very foreign to the whole concept that undergirds the, the Old Testament uh, economy. But I'm not going to get into politics here, but beware, but recognize that this whole concept that you and I are beneficiaries of as a heritage of private enterprise, private ownership. Uh, uh, understand your freedoms are directly linked to property, the laws that regarding property. As you see, the laws of property get clouded or softened or muddied up. That's, a, that's a, a, an attack on your personal freedom and your freedom of worship. That, that they're linked, strange enough. Do your homework. Understand that. Well, now we get to another one. Neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. You know, uh, this sounds like it's a commandment. It has to do with the courtroom. It's phrased the way we would imagine it that way, but I think there's much more involved here. I love to ask an audience, what is the most painful sin in the list? Of all the sins you can think of, what particular category of sin has probably caused more pain than any of the others, even more than murder. Big pardon? Gossip, you betcha. Lying is an is, is, is extreme form. It can be more subtle than that. It can be simply gossip. Now, it's astonishing how much the Bible has to say about this. I won't go through all these verses. Those of you that haven't heard me off this tirade before may want to jot these down and... and, and, and Go through them yourselves. But it's astonishing to realize how tail-bearing, murmuring behind someone's back, how injurious that is. It's a form of betrayal that uh, is prevalent everywhere and, strangely enough, also widely prevalent within the Christian community. For, and and I, don't, I, I, I don't have statistics to suggest it's worse there than elsewhere, but it's, there's no evidence that it's any better. And uh, so um, I'm reminded, of course, there were three pastors that were having a, they would meet regularly every week for prayer and, and sharing their burdens, each from three different churches. But they'd share, they had a fellowship and they would share. And the one guy said, you know, guys, I really need some prayer because I've got a real problem uh, with pornography. I've got, it's, it's crept into my life and I got to get, ma- I, I need prayer. I got to master, I got to be rid of this bondage. And the second guy says, gee, as long as you're being so candid, uh, I have to tell you too, I've got a problem in my stewardship of finances. I've been skimming off the offering plate and compromising a number of the things, and I covered your prayers there. And the third guy says, gee, as long as you guys are being so candid, I'll tell you my problem is gossip, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> so. hey, uh, whenever I get into this, I'm reminded of a poem that I usually work in at this place, and since this is a relatively short chapter, I'll, I'll sneak it in now. There's a poem by Barbara Young that uh, I hear it said. Last night, my friend, he said he's my friend, came in and questioned me. I hear it said that you have done this and that. I've come to ask, are these things true? A glint was in his eye of small distrust. His words were crisp and hot. He measured me with anger and, uh, uh, and had flung down a little heap of facts that had come to him. I hear it said that you've done this or that. Suppose I have. Are you not my friend? And are you not my friend enough to say, if it were true, there would be reason in it? And if not, I cannot know the how or why. Still, I can trust you, waiting for a word. And if no word, no word, if no word ever come. Is friendship just a thing of afternoons, of pleasuring one's friend and one's dear self? 
greed for sedate approval of his pace, suspicion if one take a little turn upon the rod, one flight into the air and has not sought you for a yea or nay? No, friendship is not so. I am my own, and howsoever near my friend may draw unto my soul, there is a legend hung above a certain straight and narrow way. It says, Dear friend, you, here you may not enter. I would that the time has come, and it is not, when men shall rise and say, He is my friend. He has done this. What is that to me? Think you that I have a check upon his head or cast a guiding rein across his neck? I'm his friend. And for that cause I walked not over close beside him, leaving still space for his silences and space for mine. Barbara Young, 1936. It's best love poems of American people. Always runs through my mind when I talk about this sort of thing. Moving on. Let's move on. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, Neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. To covet, that's to lust for somebody else's property. This is different than all the other commandments because this is not enforceable in a court of law. This deals with intent. It's the only one of the, uh, of the ten. All the others are explicit. You can sort of bring in evidence before a jury and say, is he guilty or not guilty? This is something that happens inside the heart. And Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 5 that it's in the heart that all these others have their birth and they all start, in a sense, with lust. Not just an adultery thing. All, all these have, have their root of ambition of some kind. Somebody else's property, what have you. See, the main thing about all of these things is to realize that this um, last commandment is the most forceful of all because it demonstrates something that most people to this day still have not learned, and that is that it is impossible to keep the law perfectly. The law was not given to assure perfect conduct. One of the things you want to do in your Christian growth is do a careful study of the book of Romans. Some people call it the gospel according to Paul, but it is the definitive statement of Christian doctrine, and you'll discover some shocking insights out of chapters 4 and 5, well, the whole book really, but the first half a dozen chapters really deal with the law, and it'll shock you to discover that the law was given so that you might sin more completely. Or to say it another way, as we Paul mentioned it, it is to reveal to you that you are sinning. You can be sinning and not realize it without the law. The law shows you the sin. <laughs> I remember Walter Martin once speaking to a very denominational church at one time, and he says, you know, the law, he's going through all this, and he's saying the law is like a, like a mirror. It shows us our sin. But the law doesn't save us, because I'm shaved by grace. <laughs> and, you know, some laughed, like I did. The straight life denominations were really quite offended. They thought that was, you know, sort of a little off color. That was, he had no water. He was just mischievous, but... But it's true. The law is to show us our sin. And the law does not save us. The law shows us our need for a Savior. And that's, uh, but anyway, uh, the, and this, this, t- this Tenth Commandment that demonstrates this because there's no way any one of us in this room can, can raise their hand and say, I've never coveted. I suspect there's none of us in this room that can raise their hand being free of any one of the ten, especially this one, in one way or another. 
We need to, the law was given for us to recognize our need for our Redeemer. And that's what it's, that's really what it's, uh, it's, it's all about. Let's move on. Verse 22, these words the Lord spake unto all your saints. Remember, this is all Moses recounting to them that was, should be familiar to them. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, of the thick darkness, with a great voice. And he added no more. He wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. You all remember that. You all saw Charlton Heston with those two tables of stones under his arm. Right? It came to pass, when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire, that you came near to me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God hath showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Wow. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee and we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when, he, when you spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. In other words, the whole idea, the, they, they requested for Moses to be a mediator between the living God and themselves. And that was their request, but God approves it. Understand that. The whole experience at Horeb or Mount Sinai is uh, impressed on, uh, on them a sense of their own moral inadequacy and uh, their mortality, the fact that they are all going to die one way or the other, and their responsibility to obey God. Uh, there's a, there, is, there is a very real awareness at that time, and Moses recounts this. Now, they're going to quickly forget that, and that's what he's leading up to here. But uh, it says, Oh, that there were such a heart in them, that they, this is God speaking to Moses, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they should fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. The way this is expressed, even in the English translation, you get the sense that God is recognizing. You can hear an acknowledgment in the, un, underneath the text here that he knew they would fail. Oh, that there were such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God wants them to, be obedient, to listen and to be obedient for their sakes, not God's sakes, that their lives will be, well, it's... It's sin that destroys our lives. People have all kinds of problems. Our world is full of sickness and, and, and all these dark things. Yes, that's all derivative of sin. And Satan, both. Anyway, so uh, God says, to, he says, Go say to them, get into your tents again. And so the uh, Lord approved of the people's response. And uh, uh, he, he hinted, though, that he knew they wouldn't carry out their good intentions. Verse 31, But as for thee, stand thou here by me, God speaking to Moses, but Moses is recounting to them. And I will speak unto thee all the commandments and all the statutes and the judgments which thou shalt teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right or the left. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, that ye may live and that it may be well with you, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which ye shall possess. So again, the divine origin of the law is, is, uh, is stressed here. And uh, 
they, were, they got their Ten Commandments and they were dismissed to their tents. Now, we're going to see that uh, what Moses is about to tell them, all chapter 6 that's forthcoming here, um, is, uh, is also from the Lord, just as were the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments isn't the whole ball of wax. There's, there's more coming. But the obedience to all that Moses uh, was about to teach them was critical uh, for the prosperity in their land, for their endurance as a nation, to survive as a nation. And so we uh, let's close chapter 5 and go to Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to talk about a number of other commands and warnings in here. And we're going to come across the most frequent verse in the entire Bible. It's not John 3.16. We'll come to that. Let's move on. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which uh, the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. So uh, uh, the, um, the whole, the whole uh, chapter 6 through chapter 11 is going to deal with these warnings and commandments and implications. And uh, the, uh, the, the obedience to these commands will be their demonstration that they really love God. And, and uh, Jesus himself laid down a very similar condition uh, for Christians in John 14, 21 and elsewhere. But let's move on. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. So, it's a law in effect. One of the thing, aspects of the law, the law was given because it gave them a way to express reverence to their Creator. And the need to obey these laws is going to be stressed all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Also, part of what gets associated with that is... Keeping the law will be their mechanism for prosperity individually and as a nation. And again and again, things may go well with you. So it'll be, in effect, in effect self-fulfilling. If they keep the law, things will be better for them. They'll be better off. Now we get to a, a passage of Scripture that is the most frequently reproduced passage in the entire Bible. It's not John 3.16, even though I'm sure it's, that's very familiar to each of us. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Familiar to all of us, of course, if for no other reason than Jesus quotes from this for what he calls the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? It's not one of the ten. It's this one. And so it's interesting. Um, Now, this is one reason I say it's the most frequently promoted uh, uh, scripture, is that it is uh, the it is uh, uh, the basic confession in modern Judaism. In fact, uh, the verse uh, uh, simply means that the Lord Jehovah, or however you want to pronounce it, um, is totally unique. He alone is God, and. Uh, so this would give the Israelites, since they going to the land, a sense of security because there's all different kinds of gods and so forth that they'll find all kinds of tribes, all kinds of weird ideas. They can take the security that all that nonsense, our Lord, is unique, alone, and there's none other. We take that for granted, but that's not a t- thing we're taking for granted. Um, and just because someone believes in one God shouldn't uh, 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 confuse you. The, more, the Muslims were, worship Allah as one God, but not really. 
But even Allah, as it's presented in the Quran, is the opposite of the God of the Old Testament. And um, the God of the Old Testament is a God who likes, he, he takes delight in making and keeping promises. Allah is presented as unknowable, capricious. He can do anything. He doesn't have to keep his promises. He doesn't have any promises to keep. So you'll discover as you understand the attributes of God as he's presented in the Bible and the attributes of Allah as it's presented in the Quran are opposites. No, there's one God, the God, the living God of the Bible. And they're actually, believe it or not, opposed. And that, that fiction uh, that, they're, that, the, that they're the same or similar and that, that Islam is a religion of peace is one of the tragic uh, uh, falsehoods that pervades our society. And, it's going to, and we'll reap the whirlwind because of it. Anyway, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, there are, it's interesting that uh, the, word, this is called, the word here is Shema. Hear, O Israel. And because of the first word here, this whole passage is known as the Shema. It is, if you go into any uh, um, Jewish house, even apartment building, you'll notice on the right side of the door as you go in, there's a little case, sometimes wood, metal, whatever, little decorative case, inside of which is a piece of scripture. Usually, not always, but usually this one, the Shema. You'll notice an Orthodox Jew will go, touch it with his fingers and to his lips and as, as he goes and comes. And that's a mezuzah. And this is the passage. That, so every threshold of every dwelling throughout the world that's Jewish will have this passage on the, on the doorpost. And so that's why I make the case. Now, the word Shema means here. Now, the word Echad, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. People say, Jew, I thought we believe in the Trinity. That's people don't understand what the word Echad means. It means one in the sense of being unified. In, in fact, in Genesis, um, in uh, chapter 2, verse 24, Adam and Eve are spoken of as Echad, one. They're still separate, but they are one. They're unified. The word echad means one, but it means one in the sense of union or unity. And it's interesting that every place you see the word Elohim, the name for God, Elohim is a plural, by the way. If you know enough about Hebrew, you know that many certain classes of nouns have I-M endings. Cherub, cherubim. Seraph, seraphim. Elo, Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. It's interesting that in the Hebrew text, when you see the word Elohim, it's a grammatical error because it's treated as a singular noun, but it's a plural noun. So you already got a hint, even in the Hebrew structure, in the first verse of the book of Genesis 1 and so forth. You know, Bereshit, Barah, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. God who? Them. Th- those guys. And you see that in the English. Let us make man in our own image. Who is he talking to? Adam hadn't been made yet. Let us, who is he talking to? It's the, it's the triune God. See, you and I can't imagine three separates and still have... We can't imagine plural, plurality in the absence of unity. We only see it in the absence of unity. The idea of plurality and unity together in one thing is a concept that we need to embrace to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the Trinity. But uh, So we have the Shema here, Echad, meaning one, or unit, and Elohim, God, which is plural. So strangely enough, in the Shema, you have buried in the, in the vocabulary and the structure and a hint, at least, of the Trinity. And if you haven't gotten this, we have a briefing on the Trinity if you really want to get into this that deals with Old Testament as well as New. It's amazing how the Trinity is all through the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament concept. But let's move on. 
And these words, Moses, which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now, he is not making ceremonial requirements here. It's amazing how we like to substitute rules or form rather than substance. The idea was that we'd sh- they'd be sharing this all the time, not making a ritual out of it. Once you make a ritual out of it, it loses its, its, its impact. And so the whole idea is that the Lord would be a constant focus of concern and for the good pleasure uh, of, of them. And uh, so, again, you'll find that the parents will be uh, here. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And the, the Orthodox Jews this, do it very deliberately. A little, they can buy little leather boxes. They put the Hebrew in there. They write, put it on their forehead and on their hands when, they, when they're in worship. They literally they take this very seriously. They put them on their hands and little frontlets on their eyes. And uh, uh, I can remember Nan and I were in, uh, well, this was many decades ago, we were in Israel. In those days, the rabbinical tunnel was, it was an off-limits place, and we had arrangements to go see it. And Rabbi Yehuda Getz was there to receive us. But he hadn't finished his worshiping yet. First time I'd actually seen, you know, as, he, as he finished, he was unwrapping his phylacteries, these boxes off his thing, and uh, to get ready to receive us and so forth. And, and I remember when we had the tour of the rabbinical tunnel at those days, that he had a yod. It's a, a silver little wand with a finger on it, a little hand with a finger. And when they read the Torah, they never touch it. They use the yod to follow it, to go through. And he, he had a chain. He ripped it off his chain and gave it to us as a gift. We have it in the living room now as a, a gift from him. But it's, they, they have, they take, they give them their credit. They take these things very seriously. And yet it's interesting how as you get, you can take these things so seriously that you lose the meaning behind them. They become rules and ceremonies rather than in their heart. And so, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and upon thy gates. And that's where they get this issue of a masusa. A masusa is, the word means doorpost. And uh, you can find all different kinds of masusas. Uh, uh, most Jewish stores will have all kinds of, some ornate, simple, made of everything you can imagine. Some wood, some stone, some silver, whatever. And, uh, the, but inside, the idea is inside, there's a little parchment, typically with uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Let's move on. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which the sworn of uh, thy fathers to Abram, Isaac, and to Jacob to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not and houses full of good things which thou fillest not and wells dig which thou diggest not and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not when thou shalt have been eaten and be full. That uh, then beware. See, when you're prosperous, he says, let's, don't forget thee. Then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You know, one of our biggest threats to our spiritual walk is when we prosper. When we've lost our job and everything's really serious, we've got medical problems or whatever, boy, then we turn to the Lord on our knees. But then, man, you know, we score a little bit and, and things start to go pretty well and we're starting to enjoy that, you know, the good life. And, and it's amazing how we seem to lose our priorities and... Uh, you forget the Lord, the very Lord that brought us that prosperity. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and thou shalt swear by his name. And that's the highest form of, see, again, that's, that's, uh, that's constructive when it's a evidence of an allegiance and a fear of God. You shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. 
the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. He's saying it individually and collectively. And he's going to go to prayer here shortly. We'll see. He'll talk about that. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. In Massa, you may recall, that's when uh, they were without water and, and uh, uh, they were, uh, anyway, the, 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 they were one of the cases, the many cases in the wilderness wanderings when the people were murmuring and, and challenging God in many ways. So uh, seeking proof of his presence and so forth. And it's interesting here, it says, ye shall, by the way, you realize that when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, Luke 4, you all know the, temp, the three temptations of Christ, Satan tempts him. It's interesting that each one of those three temptations, as we call them, of Christ, were met with the word of God from Deuteronomy. Jesus quoted each time from the book of Deuteronomy, one of which is, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. God says, You will not put me to the test, but you know, I can't go through this without highlighting to you an exception to that. It may shock you to realize that there is an exception uh, to this general statement, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And uh, we find that in Malachi 3.10. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10, God says, do you, do you rob God? He says, where have we robbed you? In the tithes and offerings. He says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And get to notice what he says, and prove me now herewith. God's saying, I dare you to dare me. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. This verse is one of the strangest in the entire Bible. To realize that the ruler of the universe has put himself in a box. He has dared you to challenge him. Prove me now you're with. Bring in the tides and see if I will do what in response. Open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing? How big? That there shall not be room enough to receive it. Wow. This verse is the answer to any financial problem. You got problems financially? Check out Malachi 3.10. God dares you to put him on the spot. Interesting passage. Continuing in Deuteronomy 6, verse 17, You shall, you shall dil- diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and statutes which He hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord hath sware to your fathers, and to cast out all the enemies before thee. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying... Now notice, it's the son asking the father. See, what's, the undercurrent through this whole thing is the parents, not the Levites. It's the parents' responsibility to teach the kids. When thy son asks thee in time to come, saying, What mean these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments? And I won't get into the technicalities. What's a statute? What's a testimony? What's a judgment? They're all ordinances of various kinds. Uh, Which the Lord, thy God, hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I want you to notice, by the way, something that is missed by many people. This whole context is among people that were redeemed already. We're not talking about conditions for salvation here. They're already redeemed. They've been brought out of Egypt. And uh, so understand, the, 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 the obedience is, should, is intended to be a response to that gift of God. And continue with the Father says the Son, And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. 
And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. That's the father's response to that son's question. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. Now this verse does not promote a works principle for salvation. Many people try to build a, a, a cause for salvation because they take it out of context. And uh, the whole idea is that, that the laws function to, to provide a standard of conduct which is righteous in God's sight as our response and, uh, to, to his love, not to merit uh, the grounds for that state in the first place. So that ends the session. Why don't we take a 10-minute break? I say keep it to 10 minutes for this reason. We'll start at 20 after, and that means we'll finish at 20 after 9. We'll get you out here. If, if, we, if the break takes too long, that just delays your departure. A lot of people are doing a long way. Got one couple here all the way from Turkey. They've got to get going here. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break and uh, have a cookie.